0: Funds for Bookworm are provided in part by Lannan Foundation. Where would we be without boos? Where would we be without birds? It's a rhetorical
1: question, sir But where would we be without books? Be without From KCRW and KCRW.com, I'm Ann Beattie. Welcome to this Bookworm retrospective show, a celebration of 33 years of Bookworm on KCRW with Michael Silverblatt. Michael is on hiatus for health reasons. I was a guest on Bookworm many times. Michael spoke with me about my short stories and novels. We became buddies sharing our love of literature. He was brilliant and compassionate. He adored writers, and I believe I can speak for those he interviewed. We adored him. The Nobel Prize in Literature has been awarded annually since 1901 to an author from any country who has, in the words of the will of Swedish industrialist Alfred Nobel, in the field of literature, produced the most outstanding work in an idealistic direction. Michael spoke with eight Nobel Prize laureates. We heard excerpts from bookworm shows with four of them, Toni Morrison, Wojje Soyinka, Orhan Pamuk, and Seamus Heaney. Today, we'll be hearing from four more laureates, Kazuo Ishiguro, Mario Vargas Yosa, Doris Lessing, and Sheswa Miwosh. Kazuo Ishiguro, the 2017 Nobel laureate, was born in Japan. He moved to England with his parents when he was five. He was a frequent guest on Bookworm.
2: In 1990, we discussed his Booker Prize winning novel, The Remains of the Day. The novel is about a butler in the days after the fall of the English butler, ruminating about his service for Lord Darlington and about the kind of world that has produced him and now to some extent ejected him. This book is also about love in a sense and in some way the unexpressed love for miss kenton the what is her post she's a housekeeper his unexpressed love mirrors perhaps his inexpressible love or devotion to lord darlington and so this is a book where great amounts of um, comedy as well as passion get expressed off stage as it were how do you express an inexpressible love as a writer
3: well i I guess by trying to portray all the tensions surrounding the lack of expression Um, and the portrait of stevens in this book is a lot of it is just that it's it's it's, it's about a man who, for some reason, has forbidden himself to love. And this very painful idea comes over him that he has wasted his life.
2: Lord Darlington, for different reasons, eventually becomes a Nazi sympathizer. Is the political sense of the book its base or subordinate in some sense to it? Certainly when I was planning the
3: book, it it was a very fundamental part of the structure. In fact, one of the reasons I decided to write through a character of a butler was because that provided me with a key metaphor. And that metaphor was this, that um, I wanted to say something about the relationship of the small, ordinary person to political power. And I suppose in, in, in some sort of way, I was suggesting that there is something of the butler in most of us. And that's really the position Stevens adopts. He says, and I think it's a very dangerous one politically, but he says, uh, look, I'm just a butler. I don't understand about world economics and and diplomacy uh, and military strategy. Um, I'm just a butler. And the only way someone like me can contribute to great affairs is really to just serve a great man who does know But of course, uh, unfortunately for him, he, he trusts in the wrong man. He trusts in the man who ends up collaborating with the Nazis.
2: In 2005, I spoke with him about his novel, Never Let Me Go. Although it takes place in England in the late 1990s, it has a dystopian science fiction dimension. Children who are clones are being educated at a boarding school. They will eventually be used as organ donors. These are, in a sense, children who've been given special treatment. They've been sent to a, a special school where the teachers are concerned to give them poetry, novels, have them do art. There's a sports pavilion, there's attractive grounds, there are places for their privacy. After they
3: leave this establishment, um, the kids... Ask this question: why, why did they make us do all this? And they, they realize that they have a limited lifespan. You know that they're, they're bred for organ donation. That they they don't expect to live much beyond their late twenties. So why why did they spend so much of their time and energy um, being encouraged to create art? Why create a conscious
2: being only to destroy that being? Through four donations, after which they're said to be completed. Although monstrously, they may be conscious still and still giving donations after they've been officially completed. <laughs> you know, I don't believe in God, but if
3: if there was a God, you might well ask more or less the same question to God about how He's built us. Yes. Yeah. Um, you know. So so why why you know. Since we, we're all basically, we've been created to only live at most, you know, 80, 90 years, un- unless something comes and cuts us down earlier than that. Um, so what is the point? You know, why do we, not just art, but why, you know, why do we work? Why, why do we have a moral consciousness? Why do we worry about um, our relationships and seeking love and being loved if we're just all going to just um, crumble into dust anyway? I mean, who devised this? Why were we created just to die again? But all the questions I wanted these young people to ask are the questions that we all ask, and all the questions that they push to the back of their minds, like those ones that you just said. You know, so why why have we why have we been created? You know, should we rebel? They're the same questions I think that we push to the back of our minds. You know, we know we're mortal, but we don't spend all our time. Morbidly dwelling on that fact, we we involve ourselves in the minutiae of our little lives. We even entertain myths about how we can ward off death through art or through finding true love, just as these kids do.
1: That was Kazuo Ishiguro. Peruvian novelist Mario Vargas Llosa was awarded the Nobel Prize in 2010. He ran unsuccessfully for the presidency of Peru.
2: Today I'm, I'm very honored to have as my guest Mario Vargas Llosa, the great Peruvian novelist recently politician whose most recent book, In Praise of the Stepmother, has been published by Farris, Strauss, and Giroux, the first self-avowedly erotic Mario Vargas Llosa novel. What led you to this?
4: Well, I think it's a novel. It's a novel about uh, physical love, and in this sense uh, it may be called erotic novel, but I don't like specialization in novels. I think a novel <laughs> should embrace um, a white... Uh, number of of human experience to be a a real novel. In the past, particularly, let's say, in the 18th century, erotic literature was not only erotic, but it was high-quality literature. It was literature in in which uh, artistic achievement, formal experimentation, uh, moral uh, challenges were equally important, but in contemporary times, literature and in general, art about physical love has become very cheap and, and usually very vulgar. And uh, so my idea was to tell an erotic story using all the elements typical of an erotic story, but trying to avoid the vulgarity, and uh, unlike what has happened with most of the books that I've written which usually are a very painful experiences. Uh, <laughs> in this case, I have had great fun writing the book. I really enjoyed it very much, and it was a very uh, pleasant experience for me to, to do it. Uh. It's been commented
2: on by several reviewers, inevitably, that not only would we not have an American politician, much less candidate for the presidency, writing a novel like this, but that probably the National Endowment that finances um, writers would probably, as John Updike said, not have given it a grant. What was the response to this book, which came out just prior to your campaign
4: Oh no, the book the book came during the campaign <laughs> well it was it was well received in general by the by the public and by the reviewers. It was used of course by my op- opponents in the campaign against myself, presenting me as a pornographer and but I don't think this has much effect, you know, in the results of the election. I, I, I don't think I was defeated because the book. No, I don't think that.
2: Had, uh, <laughs> Don Rigoberto's paradise is undone in a sense by literature or the fledgling attempts at literature. His son has written a composition for school called "In Praise of the Stepmother," and it is in reading this composition that Don Rigoberto realizes that his son and his new wife, have been, in fantasy, in reality, um, coupling. Um,
4: Does literature overthrow all paradises? Well, I think that's one of the functions of of literature, to reveal what is hidden, what is hidden in the mind, in the the sensibility, in the personalities, in the social world. I think that that's one of the most important aspects of of literature to complete uh, the the description of the real world to make uh, visible which is invisible for for most of the of the of the people most of the time and also to activate uh, human imagination for renewal uh, for renewal for for not uh, to to become uh, passive and, and to to decline I think this this is one of the this one of the most important functions of literature and art to excite people and to give people ideas sometimes the wrong ideas but ideas that push them to to act to do something to find and to criticize and to be alert of the limitations of, of the real world.
1: That was Peruvian novelist Mario Vargas Llosa. Today, we're hearing from Nobel laureates Michael Silverblatt interviewed on Bookworm. We'll be back after this short break.
5: I want to tell you about a new show from the Financial Times called Life and Art from FT Weekend, hosted by me, Lila Raptopoulos. Life and Art is twice a week. On Mondays, I have a guest on to talk about life and how to live a good one. Everything from winter travel to cooking to living more creatively. And on Fridays, we talk art. Two FD journalists and I discuss a piece of culture that's in the air. New music, movies, and more. Find life and art from FD Weekend wherever you listen.
1: I am Ann Beatty, and this is a Bookworm retrospective show which includes four of the eight Nobel laureates Michael talked with. Doris Lessing... Nobel laureate in 2007, was born to British parents in Iran, but spent her childhood in Rhodesia, now Zimbabwe.
2: Today my guest is Doris Lessing. It's the occasion of the publication by HarperCollins of volume one of her autobiography, Under My Skin, and the most recent novel is The Fifth Child. I was very um, stirred by your recollecting a childhood intransigence um, saying in the face of the stuck position of your mother and father that I will not, I will not be like that, I will not become that.
6: You see, that, that business of I will not when I was a child, I think I must have had pretty heavy pressure on me very young to think in ways I didn't want to think or to see things in ways I didn't want because otherwise I can't account for it. The earliest uh, age I can remember saying this to myself was when my brother was born. Now remember, this is what happened. Don't let them talk you out of it. I have no doubt that this is what I was thinking, and it must have been about, really, two and a half. So I think I I was um, preserving a sense of identity against very heavy pressure.
2: But I think as well of the books you describe that are in the libraries of the religious schools that you were brought to and the books that you'd been given to read. And there seems to be a distinct refusal in your work to accept the sentimentalizations of experience.
6: You're referring to those Pauline books in the convent (laughs) southern Rhodesia. Yes, well... um, Yes, I do think I've spent a lot of time refusing to be sentimental, and that again was, this time, pressure from my mother, who was sentimental, not my father, who was not. I'm not knocking being sentimental, you understand. I mean, it's just that, um, to me, it's a falsification. I ever saw it as a kind of crusade or um, something I had to protect in that way. It was something I sort of got on with, but then if you've been writing since you were very young, what happens is a, is a kind of relationship between you and what you need to write, which um, it has its own laws, if I can put it like that. it has. You have to um, be, be aware of what you need to do and to refuse to uh, go along with something that isn't working. I mean, to be just practical. You can start a book or a short story... And after a chapter or two, you know that this is absolutely wrong. It is the wrong tone of voice, it's the wrong feel, and you have to throw it away and start again, maybe two or three times. And that is because you are looking for that, uh, if you... I'm sorry to sound a bit airy-fairy, but that place in yourself who can write that story.
2: Well, one of the things I most admired in Under My Skin, the first volume of your autobiography, is that there is no period, it seems, when there was a melodramatization about writing. Other things posed problems, but you are, at least as presented in the book, rewriting The Grass is Singing, very calmly, in the midst of a hundred other things going on, and it seems to have never been that kind of hysteria
6: that you sometimes find in young writers. But aren't you saying that... um you see, I think I'm, a, I'm just naturally a writer This, this is what i am I write, I'm a writing animal where there are architects or painters. If there's something you have to do and it's what you can it's what comes naturally, then it's just a question of not letting other things get in the way Now, that is a difficult thing, you know uh, um, not letting other things take away the energy that you need and then you have to find out what it is that does take away the energy, and we're all different. I once said that novelists were like earthworms digesting, they eat earth and make new earth from it, a a lowly occupation, compared to poets, for example.
2: Who do what?
6: Ah, well, they obviously have different messages. Do you remember Nadir de Mandelstam's Hope Against Hope, and how she described him, the poet, how he would start hearing a sound and say to her, I've got my sound, and this sound would uh, become words. And for him, writing poetry was a question of listening. I don't think novelists listen in that way.
2: What strikes me again and again was that while there are certain extreme emotional states in your work, the works don't seem to participate in hysteria or extremity.
6: I don't much respect the kind of writing which is a great bath of emotion, Uh, you know, which... I know some people like it, admire it, and some writers like writing like that. I didn't think... I think... um, no matter how violent or difficult or complicated uh, the life is that you're describing, you, you should, of course, be apart from it to have some kind of a bird's-eye view, if you like, or a worm's-eye view. <laughs> <laughs>
1: that was Jaris Lessing. Shestal Miłosz, born in Lithuania, was the Nobel laureate in 1980. There was an international festival celebrating him in 1998, which Michael attended.
2: Czesław Milos, surely one of the world's two or three greatest living poets, is still remarkably vital at 87. His book, Roadside Dog, was published by Farrar, Strauss, and Giroux, and it's a brilliant achievement, experimenting with parables, daybook entries, and mini-fiction. In 1980, he was informed he had won the Nobel Prize. This spring, Claremont McKenna College hosted an international festival honoring Milos, Organized by McKenna Professor Robert Fagan, this gathering of world poets and scholars included Irish Nobel Prize laureate Seamus Heaney. This is Czesław Miłosz reading his poem The Blacksmith Shop at the Lannan Reading in
7: Los Angeles this spring. I returned to Lithuania, to my native place, uh, uh, after 52 years. And then I, I stood at the place where there was in my childhood blacksmith shop and this is a, a poem about that i like the bellows operated by rope a hand or foot pedal i don't remember which but that blowing and the blazing of the fire and the piece of iron in the fire held there by tongs, red softened for the anvil Bitten with a hammer, bent into a horseshoe, thrown in a bucket of water, sizzle, steam. And horses, each to be shod, tossing their manes. And in the grass by the river, plowshares, sledge runners, harrows waiting for repair. At the entrance, my bare feet on the dirt floor. Here, gusts of heat. At my back, white clouds. I stare and stare. It seems why I was called for this, to glorify things, just because they are. Nobel laureate
2: Seamus Heaney's most recent work is Opened Ground, Selected Poems 1966-1996, to 1996, published by Farrar Strauss, and Giroux. Mr. Heaney and I discussed Miwosh and the poem you just heard, The Blacksmith Shop. The poet is remembering the blacksmith shop and The child is there. He remembers the things lying around the harrows and the the old uh, farm farm machinery. And he remembers his feet on the clay floor. He remembers the fire. It's autobiographical. Clearly, this is a memory of a specific uh, blacksmith shop in Lithuania. But there is a sense that uh, Miwash is remembering for us all, for the species, almost. And the, the poem opens out at the end from autobiographical remembrance. And beautiful as that is, it has been in the poem, there comes this calm, tender, sure statement about what poetry is. And he says, it seems I was called for this, to glorify things just because they are. I talked with American poet Robert Haas. Haas told me about Milos' young adult life after his magical childhood in Lithuania.
0: He um, snuck into Warsaw, uh, which meant that he spent the next seven years, six years, um, uh, right at the center of the uh, horror of the Nazi occupation of Eastern Europe and the extermination of the European Jews. When it looked like the Russian army was about to invade Warsaw, people in the underground who were in contact with the Polish uh, government in exile in London um, arranged a pre-established time when the Poles in the underground would come out onto the streets and fight the Nazis as the Russians were advancing across the river into the city so that there would be a Polish government of sorts in place when the Russians arrived. This was supposedly coordinated with the Russian army. The signal was given. Young Poles with um, bottles full of gasoline, um, handmade guns, stolen guns, went into the streets and the Russian army waited on the other side of the river while the German army killed 250,000 Poles.
2: This is Robert Haas reading Cheshwa Miłosz's poem Dedication, written for the dead of the Warsaw Uprising.
0: Dedication. You, whom I could not save, listen to me. Try to understand this simple speech as I would be ashamed of another. I swear... There is in me no wizardry of words. I speak to you with silence, like a tree or a cloud. What strengthened me for you was lethal. You mixed up farewell to an epoch with the beginning of a new one. Inspiration of hatred with lyrical beauty. Blind force with accomplished shape. Here is a valley of shallow Polish rivers and an immense bridge going into white fog. Here is a broken city and the wind throws the screams of gulls on your grave when I am talking with you. What is poetry which does not save nations or people? A connivance with official lies a song of drunkards whose throats will be cut in a moment, reading for sophomore girls. That I wanted good poetry without knowing it, that I discovered late its salutary aim, in this and only this I find salvation. They used to pour millet on graves or poppy seeds, to feed the dead who would come disguised as birds. I put this book here for you, who once lived, so that you should visit us no more. Warsaw, 1945.
2: Robert Haas, reading dedication by Cheshwa Migos. Thank you very much, Bob.
1: That was poet Robert Haas reading Dedication by Nobel laureate Shesla Miwosh. This bookworm retrospective show also featured Nobel laureates Kajuo Ishiguro, Mario Vargas Yosa, and Doris Lessing. This is Anne Beattie. I am so grateful to KCRW for making it possible for me to honor my dear friend Michael Silverblatt for his Herculean efforts on behalf of literature, writers, and those wonderful people out there who are readers. The most dedicated reader of all is Michael Silverblatt. This show was produced by Alan Howard and Connie Alvarez. The engineer was P.J. Shahamet. Bookworm and this retrospective are made possible by Lennon Foundation.
0: I am a bookworm, he is a bookworm, she is a bookworm, we are all bookworms.
5: A we
0: are Funds for Bookworm are provided in part by Lannan Foundation. This program is produced in the studios of KCRW Santa Monica. You can access archives of all bookworm programs and podcasts, the most recent ones, at kcrw.com bookworm. The bookworm themes were composed and performed by Ron and Russell Mayle of Sparks.